Let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're thankful. We'd ask that you would keep us always alert to the need of your gospel and most of the people we meet, people we love, people we care about, family, strangers. We'd ask that you would have our understanding and confidence be in your your son's uh, work. We'd ask that you would be blessing us in it as we look at it this morning in your son's name. Amen. As you, those of you who read your Bible, I trust it's all of you. When someone says 1 Corinthians 15, you're, oh yeah, that's the bit on the resurrection. The argument on the resurrection. Kind of like, you know, 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, it's the one on love. Romans 13, it's on governments. What, you know, you have certain chapters that register with you. And sometimes when you have a famous chapter, you end up thinking about 1 Corinthians 15 around Easter. You're arguing about the resurrection or want to create a, a circumstance of the resurrection that, that uh, is memorable to people. But I wasn't thinking that. I was Some things had come up this week in discussion at the Big House Library. And it's usually those things that prompt my thinking because I know I've already thought about it and some people are interested in it and somebody had brought up somebody had brought up Pascal's wager I forget who it was and in the discussion I said you know Pascal was wrong because of 1 Corinthians 15 Pascal's wager is uh, that basically if you believe and you're wrong, you have a decent life. And then you die and there's nothing. If you believe and you're right, you have a great life and you go to glory. If you don't believe and are wrong, even worse things happen. It's a, you know, it's a basically a uh, considering cost, benefits, hassle ratio, uh, Things like that. But it doesn't agree with St. Paul, because Paul says if there is no resurrection of the dead, we are all men most to be pitied. That's in verse 19. It's not something you get to say, hey, if it wasn't right, my life was really good. No, you're to be pitied. So I wanted to look at that because of that conversation. Not stressing that point, but something as I read through the passage this morning, which physically was at 5.30, seemed to me anyway, sometimes things jump out at you, you don't realize they're there. First Corinthians 15.1, now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. Sort of St. Paul being his usual uh, confusing self. Because it throws some things at you that you don't, as a believer, you kind of don't want to hear at the end there, if you hold it fast, like if you keep believing. Who sang that song? Don't stop. Journey? 
We do not mention the name of that band in this church. Who asked? You should have known. You should have said the band that will not be mentioned. And I could have said, well, you mean Boston? Nickelback? If you hold it fast, let's say, uh, unless you believe in vain. Now I want you to not look at that passage. It says the gospel was preached to you. You received it. You stand in it. You were saved by it. If your faith, when you, when you grab something fast, holding it fast is not holding it, you might say, durationally. It's holding it firmly. Okay? If, if my faith was, had a grip on this thing, that which I received, which I stand in, which I am saved by, if it's there, if I hold it fast, if, I, if, if I've got a grip, if my faith is that which is efficacious to say. But then it says, unless you believed in vain, and of course I put that in red so you didn't miss it. Unless you believed in vain. Like there's a category of belief that you could go through that might look like you were, you ever hear that you know, sensation about people in the church who, who well, I don't know if I believe well enough or is it all vain? Well, suffice it to say, that phrase comes back to haunt us later on in the passage and it lets you know what Paul means by in vain. Jumping to the chase, he says, unless it's just not true. Not your faith isn't, but that what you believe in isn't. If you believe in it and it's not true, your belief is in vain. I don't care how fastly you hold it. Then it tells you what the gospel is. Because the point I want to get at is, I mean, you, you can go through this passage and gain a lot of good along various axes of, of understanding. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. You say, why, why'd you stop there? Well, I'll tell you why in a minute. The Messiah died for sins as prophesied. The Messiah was buried and raised as prophesied. The rest of this, I don't have to, when I'm preaching the gospel to someone, I don't have to go, um, and you have to also believe that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelfth. Well, why not? Why do I not have to? Well, you, do you have to believe that Jesus was the Christ? That as prophesied, he died for your sins? That as prophesied, he was dead and buried and raised? Do I not also have to believe that Cephas or Peter and the twelve witnessed it? I don't think so. And I you say, well, can you just throw it aside? Well, I think it's there for a reason. It's the reason the sermon is being preached. Because you'll notice that I bolded after the gospel is preached. 
that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The thing about the appearance of the Christ to a, a large group of different kinds of people gathered together in different ways, the 500, the one, the James, the other apostles, Paul on the road to Damascus. The reason that's there is it is the stand-up witness and testimony to the resurrection. What appeared to them had to be. Jesus Christ was raised bodily. I don't know if you saw the movie Risen. Uh, Greg uh, Evans gave it to me. <clears throat> he got a little Bible story at the end, but uh, it was a great scene when this Roman tribune walks into a room chasing the disciples, and there's Jesus, who he was at the crucifixion for, and knows he was dead, tested that he was dead, and he walks into a room, there's the guy sitting there looking at him. It's, it's kind of a stunning moment. Jesus is a bit of a hippie. But, you know, uh, nonetheless, you say, this is the appearance of the dead man. We get a little unnerved when you have a ghost story where there's a, an appearance of someone who you know is dead. And how do you deal with that? But this is a bodily appearance of a man who is dead and who was buried. That he appeared. Appearing is what makes resurrection apparent. I, you could say, well, I think, I think um, resurrection has happened many times. Well, until it appears, until somebody sees it, pictures or it didn't happen, basically. Appearance is what he's lining up after the resurrection, not because the appearance accounts are all part of the story I must believe to go to heaven. But the appearance accounts are there to verify that which I must believe to go to heaven. If I don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he died for my sins, he was buried and was raised, I'm not going. Well, how do I know he was raised? Well, you know, I'll give you a list of the phone numbers, because that's why he says... So most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You can go talk to all these people, for the most part. Last of all, as one to untimely born, he appeared also to me, because for I am the least of all the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That idea of the vanity of our belief comes up again. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. He's making a claim about his belief that it was not in vain, and he made a claim at the beginning that this is a belief you hold, and there's this danger that it might be in vain. Not that he's comparing his level of belief, his strength of belief, his 
caliber of belief to yours and mine's not in vain, but yours might be. Because if it is for you, the way Paul's talking about it, if it is for you, it is for Paul vain. That's the concern. If Christ is not raised, because that's, look at the, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Because that was one of the philosophic, theological camp, you know, camps people could be in. He says, don't you realize how central this is to what we believe? You go into liberal churches today and they will chant back things in the creeds that they don't believe. They no longer believe that Jesus was the Christ. They no longer believe that he died for sins. They no longer believe that he was raised from the dead. Sent him to be with God the Father. They don't believe it. They just chant about it. He says, how, if, if, if this is being preached, how can some of you say it didn't happen or it doesn't happen? Now, you're not one of the apostles. You're not Cephas. You're not one of the 500. You're not, one of, you're not James. You're not the other apostles. You're not Paul. We don't get to line up and go, he appeared, dang it, to me. We look at it with authority at the appearance. That's what Paul brings it out for us. Said, These people you can go talk to, the people he wrote the Corinthian letter to, could have gotten on a ship, sailed to Palestine, and talked to somebody who saw him alive after death. So it would be a great time to be alive. You could go check. You go interview the people. But you're not one of those. It's been 5,000 years. All of those guys are dead. You can't talk to them anymore. You see their testimony on a page. As I was thinking about this and looking at that word, he appeared. I said, how can I how can I encourage the saints to think of their own faith as a a measure of what should be apparent to them. I don't get Jesus Christ walking on the road to Emmaus with me, which I really liked as a story in the scriptures, because there's two guys. They're not, you know, some of the twelve. Just, they're regular, you know, they're bros, but they're not, they're not people we um, know about. But we weren't there, we don't have that. What is the apparent proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or what will be evident in you that if this belief in Jesus Christ is true? Because your belief in it, how strongly you hold it, does not make any difference to whether or not it's true. Your belief does not make it true. You are only benefited if you happen to believe that which is true. One of the things that you will see, if you were there after the resurrection, you could have seen Jesus Christ. Just Joe Average could have seen Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. What is the what is the path we should take to try to ferret out what should be apparent to you? Now, given that I want to stake with the passage, 
the way the passage breaks down, Paul then goes into an argument about what it will cost you if it's not true. What will be apparent if it's not. Now, if Christ has preached his raised from the dead, verse 12, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. It followeth um, reasoning narrowly. If Christ has not been raised in red, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. That's what you go back to in verse 2. You will have believed in vain if Christ is not raised. Because it doesn't matter how religious it makes you feel. There are a lot of charming ancient religions. I like Mithraism. You know, the Roman soldiers were big into Mithras. And they had a very they had church Mithraeums, they had little churches, they kind of looked like churches, they had little pews. And they had the Mithras slaying the Persian. It's the mystic bull in the Persian cave or the Persian bull in the mystic cave. I'm not sure which it was. But uh, there's a, a, a Persian looking guy in the back of a bull stabbing him with a knife, looking away. And a couple of guys with torches standing on the side, Caltes and Calte Frates. And I kind of, you know, it's got kind of religious feelings to it. I kind of like it. Comes out of Zoroastrianism, it's got that going for it. You're just one of those. So, but Mithras wasn't true. Well, maybe, maybe not. What's the big deal? Everyone has to have a religion. You like to have religious thoughts going through your head. Have that sense of mystery, that world of fairy. St. Paul is a bit more of a realist. He says, if you're wrong, it's tragic. It's vain. Our preaching is, and your faith is. Vanity, the belief that it is. We, our beliefs are, are, are strong. We can do things. We don't always know. Uh, you take a, a placebo, but you believe it's the drug, and you get cured of cancer because your belief is strong. We, amazing what our belief can do to the real world, but it can't make a god. It can't have that god die for your sins, and it can't be raised from the dead if it didn't exist before your faith. Your faith can't make it be. Your faith can guide what your body is doing about certain sugar pills. We are found, even found, to be misrepresenting God. That's the first thing I said. You know, that, what's apparent is, if it's not true, I'm misrepresenting, essentially blaspheming. I'm putting God up to something that he wasn't up to. Because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul's a stickler. Is it true? Is it not true? You don't say things about God. I, I don't know if you have a... You know, most Christians have decided to wander off the reservation by saying, you know you're not allowed to say God damn. 
because that's taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain, which in reality you might be, but really it comes closer to home when I say God has said something, done something, been something that he has not. Claim him in some way. Prophesy in his name. Thus saith the Lord when he had not spoken. That's taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. In a much worse way than a casual uh, a reference to damnation. Not that I recommend it. But Paul's more concerned that he must be misrepresenting God if even if you say neat things about God. You know, with, you know how I would God mind that if we were crediting him with dying for our sins and being raised, and if it hadn't happened, eh, you know, no harm, no foul, been with Christians who have made great and glorious claims about what God was going to do or doing and he had not done them and they think yeah but it, it gets people believing. We, we had I think I may have shared this before over the years that chasing down false stories that people would just invent about what God did whether it was Hal Lindsey and another miracle in the upper room and you could tell how the photograph was manipulated because he had a flame of fire over his head. You go, oh, come on, how? No need to lie. People lie. People who wanted to believe, uh, my dad chased down one guy who was telling people that they used NASA computers to track back time and found the lost day of Joshua, which if you're reasonable as a human being, you know that's not possible. Not because the computers don't exist, but because you can't do that with time. But that, uh, that went the rounds. I'm probably still out there in hyperspace. My dad finally chased down the guy who started it, and he said, well, I wanted people to believe. People lying. So some people don't have that Pauline's sense of reverence where he goes, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. You don't do that. You don't assign something to God that he didn't do. If I were misrepresenting God, <coughs> that is horrifying. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Remember vanity. And you're still in your sins. Oh, suddenly, remember what I affirmed in the gospel, that Jesus died, the Messiah died, for our sins. If he did not die and was raised, he did not die for my sin. That, that means all that sense of relief was just a psychological trick I played on myself. What if you were indebted to your somebody you knew for $100,000? I mean, it was a, you know, it was a dead debt you had to pay. And somebody came along and said, hey, I heard the really good news that that uh, that debts, those debts, those debts are covered, they're kind of forgiven, they no longer have to pay them. Your, your school loans. Everybody's feeling, oh, you mean they're actually paid for? 
Somebody coming through town has a little revival meeting. School debts are paid. Just think how miserable you would feel. The next month, when a ticket came from your loan company, that you still have to pay your loans. Nothing worse to realize you're still in debt. You thought for a moment that you were objectively forgiven. You're only subjectively forgiven. You're still in your sin. So one of the things that is apparent when it is not true is that you misrepresent the living God. Two, you're still guilty, objectively, of the sins you did. Now, whatever those are, you've got your own list. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Look at the bad things that are true if it isn't true. You miss out, you, you, you uh, misrepresent, you're still guilty, and everyone who has died has perished. Because no one is forgiven. They're lost. Now, it could be anything from absolute destruction, annihilation, uh, that, that like an atheist would believe, you're dead and you're gone. I remember Frank Seaman, who used to be an antichrist here on campus. He's dead now, but he was a philosophy professor. His daughter died while he was a professor as a young adult. And it just about undid him. Because he was a true atheist. He realized that his daughter, everything he had known to be his daughter, was now only a concept. There was no actuality to her anymore. It was just a name attached to a memory. That's all it was. And it just about broke it. That could be one form. The other form is the God of heaven has not shown you mercy. If Jesus Christ has not died for your sins, you're just going to perish. Whatever you want to call it, there's no hope. 19. For if this life only we have hoped in Christ, this is the anti-Pascal passage. So there's no hope in death. He said, even if in this life we hoped in Christ, we of all men are most to be pitied. So your future, your death is taken from you ground under your heel of emotion. Some of you struggle with that, you know, just temperamentally. Am I really forgiven? How can I don't forgive myself? You're playing with things that are, that are not just insulting um, to your humanity, they're insulting to God. Because if Jesus Christ has died for sin, your, you might say, a little play that you like to have, a little depressive moment. Oh, I just don't know if I can forgive myself. Oh, really? If Jesus Christ has died for sin and you have gotten on your knees and repented of your sin, your sin is lifted. You are not still in your sins. If you suggest to yourself you are, you're acting like you don't believe. You're acting like an atheist. You're acting like a liberal. You're denying the work of God. You're saying, you're saying almost willingly, I want this not to be true. But there's a tragedy. Paul sees it as a huge tragedy 
that I would live my life in accord with something that makes us seem some, somewhat retarded. You know how you feel about people going through gender dysphoria and all the rest of things that are out there? You know, mental cases, difficult emotional frameworks. You feel for them because they don't have a grip. You know, whether it's a manic individual, whatever the person is struggling with, an unreality. And Paul says, this is the unreality. If it is not true, the little life you're leading called religion is just a tragic group mania. I said it on the side, as if it's not true, it's pointless. It's not true, it's blasphemous. It's not true, piteous. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. Veers off into this, what if he's not raised from the dead? That's what makes your faith vain. That's what makes you blaspheme. That's what makes you a tragic figure in history. But he has been, which changes everything. What I want you to do, since you don't have Christ appearing to you on the road to Emmaus, what are the things that are apparent in you that we can gain from this passage, we can pick it up from what is apparent to you if it's not true. You reverse it. If it's, if it's apparent, if it's not true, you misrepresent God. It is also apparent, if true, that you are confidently representing the Most High God correctly in this world. You are representatives, ambassadors of Jesus Christ. With that kind of confidence, And if it is not true, you're still in your sins. Guess what? If it is true, you're not. Examine what you've had made apparent to you by your belief. If it is not vain, it carries these qualities. A confidence in the Lord. A confidence in your forgiveness. A confidence for the dying. The dying are not perishing. There is an opportunity for forgiveness. They will not perish necessarily. And the living have a confidence as well. I reverse the four things and I come out of this going, if, if I believe it and it's true, its failure to be vain produces in me not futility, but a confidence, a triumphal nature of your faith. That's what you're claiming. I'm not just claiming that I believe, but that what I believe is true. And that's how Paul enters verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, the way he runs into that next paragraph is all stuff he wasn't covering before. Because he is talking as someone for whom this is true, in a world in which it is true. There is a confident preachable depth to what Christ is to us. But in fact, Christ is raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection under him, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under him, that God may be everything to everyone. Now, it's basically one of those panegyrics about the triumphal nature of our faith that Paul runs off on and starts making all sorts of extra theological claims you could spend, you know, a long time thinking about every one of them. How Adam and Christ are made similar in this, one we all die, one we're all made alive. What is the order of the end of all things? But just listen to the tone of that. When he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's when you step into it saying, and I'm not misrepresenting God. I am preaching forgiveness. I'm giving hope to the dead and hope to the living. Confidence and hope to the living. Otherwise, verse 29, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, that passage has been an often, again, you live in Mormon country, um, Mark Connect was baptized 75 times for the dead when he was back when he was a Mormon. They just have you in a baptismal TV screen, rolls another name by. This is why they like having your Ancestry.com information because they can prove that people existed, so they can put them on the lists and put their name up there. And you probably have had all your ancestors baptized by the Mormons, by someone else, on the basis of this passage. Again, like the one in verse 2, I don't think it's about what they think it's about. Why are you still doing baptisms at all? What is it? We are buried with Christ? We are raised with Christ to newness of life? Why would I say that about people who are just dead when they're dead? I think he's talking about the people getting baptized. Why are you getting baptized on behalf of dead people? Because that's all you are. You have no hope. It is all futility. You just perish. You're not forgiven. If the dead aren't raised, why'd you get baptized? Because people who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ still baptize in churches today. I don't care how unbelieving they are. They love baptism. It's so funky. It's so wet. You get to sprinkle or you get to dip or whatever it is you do. And you don't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead and that you will be raised to newness of life. And you're, I'm sorry, they don't believe it. But they love religion. Why are you still doing this? And then he says, why am I in peril every hour? I protest, brethren, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought the beasts in Ephesus. There's no, we seem to think that kind of, as long as you believe, and if you've got good rituals that are kind of beautiful, and if you have martyrs who are persecuted, 
Life doesn't get any better than that. Paul's going, it, it could be a lot better than that, thank you very much. Why would I do that? Am I an idiot? Why, why humanly speaking, would I fight the wild beasts at Ephesus? Who needs this? Religion, without it being true, is just for prigs. Just, just for the people who enjoy being that kind of annoyance to the rest of us. People who are religious and are just... Oh, we just finished that War in Heaven by Charles Williams. And, and there's a vicar priest in the story who is a liberal annoyance called uh, Batesby, Mr. Batesby. And it's just, he's comic. It's, it's, the level, his level of misquotation of the Bible is legend. And, but he doesn't really believe. He just likes the English church, the English country, Norman church, because that's really what it's all about. Every man doing what is good by his neighbor. Just nonsense religion. There are people who do not believe in anything. Just over there, behind the high school, or other side of the high school, who do not believe in anything. Matter of fact, they take any, some considerable offense to suggest that they would believe anything, because that would be too narrow. And they go to church on Sunday morning. They get up and change their clocks to get up and go to their church and sing whatever hymns they sing. Because as long as they believe, whatever it is, have community and recycle, what could be better? Well, that's what those people create. Recycling. Because they gotta have they gotta have some prissy way of living. And Paul's not big on that. He says, if the dead are not raised in red, for your memory, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's it. This is it. There is no, there is nothing afterwards. There's no resurrection. If the dead are not raised, I'm not raised. If the dead are not raised, Christ was not raised. If Christ was not raised, I'm still in my sins. Might as well just Go out enjoying myself. Because eventually, eventually the people say, no, no, you need to be living in community, living with good spirit towards your neighbors. Eventually, even those will be living in gross immorality. Those churches that have re rejected the resurrection, they are the ones who are accepting all the gross immorality inside the church. Might as well just say, hey, I'm a nihilist, I'm out. Hey, it's not true. Don't have to worry about it. I don't care if there's no forgiveness, if there's no mercy in this God, if there's no God at all. Let's eat and drink. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Ever hear that? You know, somebody says, you shouldn't hang out with your non-Christian friends because bad company ruins good morals. It's really about liberal theologians. Don't hang out with them. Don't hang out with the kind of person that would suggest the resurrection didn't happen. The dead are not raised. This is the damage it does. It drags you away from any effective forgiveness. 
You don't have anything that's real there in Christianity. You just have the prissiness. So let's go eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's reasonable. It's not true because Christ is raised. And consequently, since Christ is raised, you go into this going, I'm warning you, you deny the truth about the matter. There is a consistent place you will end up. Your morals will be bad. Come to your right mind, verse 34. Come to your right mind and sin no more, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What is apparent to us in our life in Christ is that Christ being raised, we're going about our lives representing something about God that we should be knowing that we're representing the true thing about God, not misrepresenting. We know that we're forgiven. We are lifted out of our sins. I don't get to cling to them anymore. If there's any more you've done, you confess those and you're wonderfully forgiven, but you accept the forgiveness of God because it's really there. You're dying, have hope, and your living has confidence. And you get to speak like Paul between verse 20 and verse 28. That gets to declare, that gets to preach, that gets to suggest the deep things of God in regard to this. Because the gospel's simple. The Messiah died for your sins, was buried, and was raised. That was proved to people. But our rest of our life we walk into with a lot of confidence. And that's what an awful lot of us need. And it's not merely does it stay in the creed that you say. Does it stay in your uh, actual perception? The dead are not raised. You're still in your sins. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your mercies to us. You're grateful for your son dying for us. Especially grateful for him demonstrating his power and his glory by being raised, death not having dominion over him. We'd ask that our lives would reflect the kind of confidence that that being true brings to us. That it is apparent in our lives that it is true in us. Thank you. In your son's name. Amen.